podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router. And any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two for the podcast. Today is Wednesday. It is the 27th of September. Hope you're well. If you're in Ireland, I hope you're dealing with the storm that we have ongoing. Storm Agnes, I believe. Uh, She can get to fuck and move along with herself. Had enough of that nonsense. Um, EFL Cup. Last night, we had seven games. And tonight, we have nine games. Last night, Salford City nil, Burnley four. It was a good win for Burnley. It'll be confidence building. They went with pretty strong team. I think Vincent Company looking to get confidence built among certain players that maybe haven't started the season. 
as he had hoped. Uh, Sander Burge, Jakob Brun-Larsen, Dara O'Shea and Wilson Odebert with the goals there. Exeter City won, Luton Town nil. Luton's dreadful start to the season continues. Dimitri Mitchell scored on 83 and then got himself sent off on 88 for a second yellow card. Ipswich 3, Wolves 2. I told you to watch this game. Wolves score on four minutes through Huang, score again on 15 through Tody Gomes, and then Ipswich start playing. And Amari Hutchinson scores on 28. Freddie Ladabo scores on 39. And Jack Taylor gets them the winner on 58. Really good game between the two teams. And congrats to Ipswich. Decent achievement to get themselves through past Premier League opposition. Uh, Mansfield 2, Peterborough 2. Will Swan scored on five minutes, put Mansfield one up from the penalty spot. Then Johnson Clark Harris scored two to put Peterborough two one up. And Lucas Aikens with a 93rd minute penalty equalised for Mansfield. Game goes straight to penalties. And Mansfield win 3-1 after penalties. Johnson, uh, Johnson Clark Harris, Ronnie Edwards and Josh Knight all missing for Peterborough. Only Mason Clark, Efren Mason Clark scoring. Whereas Katie Davis... Jordan Bowery and Lucas Aikens scored for uh, Mansfield. Ollie Clark and Aidan Flint did miss. Bradford nil, Middlesbrough two. Lath and Morgan Rogers with the goals for Borough and they advance. They've started to turn things around a little bit after a really bad start to the season. I still think they'll go on and do well. I think Michael Carrick is a good coach. Uh, Port Vale two, Sutton one. Joshua Thomas put Port Vale one up. Kasimu equalized on 70 and Funso, Funso, Funso Ojo gave Port Vale the win and they will advance. Uh, Manchester United three, Crystal Palace nil. Both sides heavily rotated. I would suggest United had more first team starters in their team than Palace did. Um, Onana, Varane, Casemiro, Mount, all starting. Garnacho, who should be in their first 11, also started. Amrabat started at left back in a rather odd decision. Uh, Dean Henderson got injured very, very early on, and that kind of changed how this game was going. Two minutes later, United go one up through Garnacho, then Casemiro scores six minutes after that, and then Martial would make it three to give United a comfortable win. So, look, the Premier League teams that get through, they'll be looking at Exeter, Mansfield and Port Vale. Now, Borough and Ipswich, they won't mind either, but they'll be looking at those lower league teams as the ones they want in the next round. Tonight, we have eight 7.45 kickoffs and one 8pm kickoff. So you get Lincoln City versus West Ham. Bournemouth versus Stoke, Brentford versus Arsenal, Aston Villa versus Everton, Fulham versus Norwich, and Blackburn versus Cardiff. The two biggest games, well, no, to be fair, Liverpool versus Leicester belongs in that group as well. The biggest game of those 7.45s is Chelsea versus Brighton because 
Chelsea really need something to go their way. And they want silverware. These owners, the, the pumping money in. Now, I know it's for the Premier League and the Champions League, but they could win the League Cup. They could probably take some solace from it. If Brighton go there and pump them tonight, though, pressure is going to start building on Pochettino. The big game then is the 8 p.m. kickoff. It's Manchester City away to Newcastle. Obviously, these teams played in the Premier League not all that long ago, and City won the game 1-0, but a fairly a very comfortable 1-0, in fairness. But City are without Kevin De Bruyne. They're without Bernardo Silva, and Rodri is now suspended for this one. And it's also, I think he's going to be suspended for the next league game and then the Arsenal game, which is a huge blow. So, big opportunity for Calvin Phillips, you'd imagine, to get some rhythm, try and find his best form. Because obviously, Calvin Phillips is a very good player. It's just that when a player is not playing very often, they will struggle to find anything resembling form. So he needs to have a big game tonight. But I fancy the tune to win. Uh, I'm picking Liverpool, Blackburn, West Ham, Brighton, Bournemouth, Villa, Fulham, and Newcastle to win tonight. And then the Brentford-Arsenal one, I don't know. It, it depends on how strong Arsenal go. It really does. I could see Brentford turning them over if Arsenal go with a significantly weakened team. Because Arsenal don't really have the squad to compete on three fronts. So I think the Champions League and the Premier League have to take priority. So I can see it being a weaker team here. And Brentford, with their more direct style, could cause Arsenal problems. Although without Ivan Tony, they don't have that aerial threat. But if they can, if they can win a bunch of set pieces, that's where they'll hurt Arsenal. Arsenal are soft; they don't defend set pieces all that well. I think that's how Brentford win. But I'll, I'll pick Arsenal to win the game. But I am picking Newcastle over City because I think the tune will go. Even though they definitely don't have the squad to compete on multiple fronts they don't have any intentions of or any any ambitions of winning the league this year there's no notion knocking around st james's park they can win the premier league there's no notion knocking around st james's park that they can win the champions league but the league cup the league cup would mean a huge amount to the people in the northeast and i think if they could win it it would be massive for the club and it would be a huge first piece of silverware under this ownership and we, we saw with City, they won an FA Cup to get themselves started and, and what it led to. With Chelsea, it was a League Cup under Mourinho in his uh, first season that kick-started their run of success. And I can definitely see Newcastle wanting to win this competition this year and, and being quite committed to it. And speaking of ownership impacting success in a massive way. Today's nostalgia is Blackburn Rovers in the 1990s. Because there's two outliers in the Premier League of the teams that have won it. And everybody knows who's won the Premier League. United, City, Chelsea, Arsenal, Liverpool, Leicester and Blackburn. And Leicester and Blackburn are the two outliers. Leicester and Blackburn are the two teams that are significantly smaller than those other clubs. Those other clubs, I know City have had 
their trials and tribulations over the last 25 years of dropping down and coming back up. But those are the five clubs are they're global brands. Liverpool, Arsenal and United in particular came into the Premier League as the, the three dominant teams in English football. Leicester have been a yo-yo club for most of their history. Same with Blackburn. I maintain that the Leicester team that won it is by far the weakest team to win the Premier League. Because I think Blackburn, when they won the league, were actually a very strong outfit. But their their adventure in the 90s is an outlier in their club's history. Because if you look at the history of Blackburn Rovers, they've been primarily a lower league club. They entered the Football League in 88-89. They're a top flight club for up until 1936. They get relegated. They spend three years in Division 2. They come back up. They spend three years in Division 1. They go back down. They're in Division 2 then from 1948 until 1958. Then they come back up. They're in the top flight from 58 through to 66. Then they go down into Division 2. They spend five years in Division 2 and they get relegated to Division 3. And we're into the 70s now. And they're a Division 3 team. In the mid-70s, they get promoted back into Division 2. But in 79, they get relegated again to Division 3. So 1980, they were a Division Three team. This is 15 years, basically, before they win the Premier League. They spend the entirety of the 80s back up in Division Two. They get promoted. They're middle of the pack. One year they survive by the skin of the teeth. They have a couple of years then where they get into the playoffs and they start to push and it looks like things are going in the right direction. Then they have a disastrous 1990-91 season and they finish 19th in Division 2. So they begin the 91-92 season in Division 2, unfancied, not really a team that looks like they're going to do a whole lot. They begin the season with Don McKay in charge. He gets fired on the 2nd of September. Tony Parks takes over for six weeks as they try to find uh, a long-term manager. Jack Walker is the owner of the club. He's a very, very wealthy man. He's just bought the club. He wants to invest his money. He's been donating money to the club for years to help them build a stand, to help improve infrastructure. But January 1991, he buys the club. And he says he's going to pump significant money into the club. And he's made he's made a fortune. Starting off as basically a scrap metal yard and growing from there, becoming the largest steel stockholder in Britain by 1990. 
40 years it's taken him to get himself to this point, but he is now a very, very rich man. So in 91-92, they're looking for a new manager and they approach Kenny Dogleash. Now, this is September, October 91. Dogleash had resigned as Liverpool manager back in February of that same year, citing burnout. And it was completely understandable because he had taken over as manager in 86. Then, obviously, he, he had played at Heysel, so he'd been there for that. Then, obviously, Hillsborough happens. And he makes a point of going to as many funerals as he possibly can, goes to four in one day, it takes an enormous toll on him. He doesn't speak publicly about it. Just gets his head down, tries to heal the community, heal the city of Liverpool. But he's burnt out. So he walks away in the February. Has seven to eight months off. And Jack Walker approaches him. I imagine he offered him a big bag of money, as you would have to. Kenny was one of the best managers in England at the time. He'd won multiple league titles. He'd won FA Cups. He'd established himself as manager of Liverpool as one of the best managers in the league. And Blackburner, what we would now refer to as a championship club, back then Division 2. So Kenny takes the job and Blackburn turned their season around. And things go very, very well through November pretty well in December, really well in January, a decent February. And it looks like they could potentially get automatic promotion. But then they have a disastrous March and April before finishing off with a decent last four games, two wins, two draws. They finish sixth and they get into the playoffs and they draw Derby who'd finished third. So obviously, that's going to be tough. They overcome Derby, 5-4 in aggregate. They win the home game, 4-2. Lose the away game, 2-1. But they advance, they get to the final, and things are going great. They beat Leicester in the final, and they're promoted. And Blackburn are back in the top flight for the first time since 1966. And it's massive for them because this is a rural club, so to speak. Rural, so to speak. I think Blackburn's on a major city is, is more my is more my point. Um, it's an industrial city. It's a city of hardworking people. It's a city that often sits in the shadow of Manchester and loses a lot of the attention to Manchester. It had suffered, you know, with the Thatcherite politics and a lot of the industry been taken away from them. They needed joy. And this this gave the, the city joy. And now Blackburn are back in the big time. And not only that, but they've decided they're going to be a real force in the top flight. They're not just coming up to make up numbers. 
they're coming up to give it a good go. And they spend significant money. They bring in Henning Berg, Graham Lasseau, Stuart Ripley, really, really good right winger. Always a favourite of mine. They bring in a young Patrick Anderson, who'd obviously go on have good success in Germany. They bring in Kevin Gallagher, another favourite of mine. And they have a real crack at it. Of course, their big sign is Alan Shearer. And Shearer had been at Southampton and was the hot prospect in English football at the time. And he comes in and he just destroys the league. Scores 16 goals in 21 games. Then he tears his ACL. And Blackburn have a season where they have a really good start, a mediocre middle, but a really strong end. And they end up finishing fourth. They just miss out on qualification for the UEFA Cup by one point. Now, as it turned out, it's a good thing for the purpose of history that they did miss out by a point because Norwich finished the point above them. First and foremost, Norwich finished third with a minus four goal difference, which is just bizarre. But obviously Norwich the next season will go on and play Bayern Munich. And that's one of the great moments in Norwich's history. So for the purpose of Norwich, I'm glad that Blackburn ended up finishing fourth. Not to sit on their laurels. They go out and they spend another ball of money. And they head into the 93-94 season as one of the strongest looking teams on paper. They almost signed Roy Keane. And I believe had they signed Roy Keane, and remember, Dalglish wanted to sign Keane at this point and then Zidane the following year. And imagine if they'd had those two and Shearer. I mean, there's no telling what might have been for Blackburn had Keane ended up there. Dalglish might have stayed longer as manager. Shearer probably would have stayed longer. They would have had the best midfielder and the best striker in the league. And that's a hell of a place to build from, especially when you've got a really good goalkeeper, a strong back line and good wingers. So 93-94, they're just a really, really good team. They signed Chris Sutton. So they've got the Shearer and Sutton front line. You've got Jason Wilcox on one wing. You've got Stuart Ripley on the other. You've got Mike Newell and Kevin Gallagher as the sort of backup forward options. You've got Tim Sherwood and David Batty in midfield. Mark Atkins is depth. Paul Warhorse can play anywhere through the middle of the team. You've got strong depth in defence. Your defence is built largely around Colin Hendry. But you've got Graham Lasso at left back. You've got Henning Berg in the team. You've got David May there. You've got Alan Wright there. They're a pretty strong outfit all over. Ian Pierce, young defender there as well. <clears throat> very, very talented. It's just a really well-balanced squad, which you don't see a whole lot of anymore. They finished second. 
but it's a real promising step forward. So now we've had sixth in the championship plus promoted, fourth in the first season of the Premier League, which is their first season in the in the top flight since the 60s, and now second place. And they finished eight points behind United, but they gave United a significant scare that year. And then we go into 94-95. And this is obviously the greatest season in Blackburn's history. Now, they go out early in the UEFA Cup. First round. Trelborgs of Sweden. They lose 1-0 at home. They draw 2-2 away. And they're out. In the League Cup, they would get to the fourth round. They beat Birmingham over two legs. They beat Coventry. Then they lost to Liverpool. And Liverpool would eventually go on and win the League Cup that year. In the FA Cup, they drew Newcastle. They went out in a replay. But all of that allowed them to focus on the Premier League. They start brilliantly. Now, they draw the opening day away to Southampton, but then back-to-back wins over Leicester and Coventry, a draw away to Arsenal. They beat Everton, they beat Chelsea, they beat Villa. And Shearer is on fire, and Sutton's on fire. And we're through seven games, and Shearer has six goals. Sorry, yeah, Shearer has six goals, and Sutton has four. Wilcox has a couple. Henningberg has one. Then they lose to Norwich. Chris Sutton's former team. He scores against them, but they lose. Then they draw with Newcastle. Shearer scores again. Then they beat Liverpool 3-2. Sutton gets two in that game. Then they lose to Manchester United. They lose 4-2 at home. Warhurst and Hendry scored for them. But then they string off seven straight wins. Nottingham Forest, Sheffield Wednesday, Tottenham, Ipswich, QPR, Wimbledon and Southampton. And Shearer's really found form here. Scores against Sheffield Wednesday, scores against Tottenham, scores against Ipswich, gets a hat-trick against QPR, scores against Wimbledon and gets two against Southampton. Sutton gets three goals in this run as well. Scores two, sorry, four goals, scores two against Forest, scores against Ipswich, scores against QPR. Wilcox chips in with three goals. So, in that seven-game run, they're scoring for fun. They only concede three goals. Then it's a nil-nil draw with Leicester, and then it's four straight wins again. They beat Man City, they beat Crystal Palace, they beat West Ham, and they beat Nottingham Forest. Shearer doesn't let up. He gets four goals in that run. Sutton's form dips in this spell. But Shearer is unrelenting. They lose again to Manchester United, 1-0 away from home. Then they beat Ipswich, Shearer gets a hat-trick. 1-1 draw with Leeds, lose to Spurs. Then they beat Sheffield Wednesday, they beat Wimbledon, they draw with Norwich, they beat Villa, they beat Arsenal, they beat Coventry. And again, Shearer is scoring regularly here. Sutton, his goals have dried up. But when they needed him most, they beat Chelsea, 
Then they beat Everton 2-1 and Sutton comes up big for them. They beat QPR and Sutton gets the only goal of the season, the only goal of the game. And at this point, it looks like they've got the title in hand. And then they start to stumble. 1-1 draw away to Leeds. Lose 3-2 at home to Man City. 2-1 win at home to Crystal Palace. They lose 2-0 to West Ham. And West Ham obviously would have a massive impact on how this season would end. They beat Newcastle 1-0, and that puts them in pole position. So they go into the final day, and a win, and they are champions. That's it. All they need to do is win. They're away to Liverpool. Liverpool are going to finish fourth in the league, at best. They're the better team. But they're nervous, because they've never been in this position before. United are away to West Ham on the day. And United need Newcastle, or sorry, need Blackburn to slip up. They need Blackburn to slip up. It's two points in it going into that final game. And United draw while Blackburn lose. Shearer scored for Blackburn. Liverpool got two worldies, Redknapp and Fowler, if memory serves. And win the game. But it's celebrations because United have drawn. If United, and Andy Cole missed three or four big, big chances in that game. If United had got one of them, they would have won the league. They would have reached 90 points. Blackburn would have been stuck in 89. And United would have won the league. But thankfully, thankfully it wasn't to be. And I always remember... Those games were shown. Now, Sky would show one on one channel and one on the other. Back then, they showed them together. So you could watch them on a split screen. United versus West Ham was on the right. And Liverpool-Blackburn was on the left of the split screen. And you could watch them both together. Now, back then, it was a little bit difficult because... Most people had smaller TV sets because you couldn't buy big TV sets back then. Or you you could if you had lots and lots of money. But most people had a smaller TV set, like a 28-inch TV was a pretty big TV back then. But I always remember sitting enthralled by those two games because <laughs> all of Anfield wanted Blackburn Rovers to win that game because... They wanted Blackburn to win the league. Not because they had any, well, they had affinity for Kenny, but they just didn't want United to win the league. So it was that double whammy. Kenny will get to lift the title and United won't win the league. That's what Liverpool fans were hoping for. And their own team almost ruined it all. But United bottled the final day. It was gift wrapped for them by Blackburn losing. And yet United managed a draw at West Ham. So if we look at that that season, 42 games in the league, the league campaign. And look at how strong this Blackburn team were. Now bear in mind, 
David Batty, who was outstanding at this point in his career, had won a league title with Leeds, was brought to Blackburn as a title-caliber midfielder. He misses most of the season. But their strength and depth allows them to overcome that. So Tim Flowers starts 39 games in goal, and Bobby Mims starts the other three. Now, Bobby Mims, I don't remember a whole lot of. Um, I believe he's gone on to have a decent career as a coach. He is the head coach of the Fiji National Under-20 team and also the goalkeeping coach for the Fiji Football Association. If he's gotten to live in Fiji, he is one at life. Um, He's coached in India, in Bangladesh. He worked at Hull, worked at Blackpool, worked at Bolton, worked at West Ham. So he's been around, but he's currently in Fiji. Uh, A journeyman career, Halifax, Rotherham, Everton, bunch of loans, Notts County, Sunderland, Blackburn, City. Then he went to Spurs, had a loan to Aberdeen. Spent six years at Blackburn, played 128 games. So he would have been first choice, I'm guessing, before Tim Flowers came in. Um, And then Palace, Preston, Rotherham, loan to York, permanent to York, and then finished off at Mansfield. So a long career, 81 to 2001. Won himself a Premier League title. Paul Pork in your house for. Uh, but Tim Flowers is the, is the star of the show in terms of goalkeepers here. He'd come through the Wolves Academy, often wrongly um, attributed to the Southampton Academy, which was has always been a very good academy. But he came through the Wolves Academy and joined Southampton at 19, having spent a couple of years as the first choice for Wolves. He's outstanding for Saints. Really, really outstanding. Did have a loan spell with Swindon early in his time there, but established himself quite quickly as the number one and established himself as a future England goalkeeper. Um, Goes to Blackburn for 2.4 million in November of 93, the most expensive goalkeeper in Britain at that time. Would spend six years at the club, 177 league games, 217 in all competitions, and was was one of the best goalkeepers in England, without question, for the first five years he was there. And he had been the same for the probably the last four years of his time at Saints. And it's a real shame that he only has 11 caps because he deserved a lot more. I've talked about this a few times with the English goalkeeper situation. Chris Wood should have got a lot more caps. Tim Flowers should have got a lot more caps. And Nigel Martin should have got a lot more caps, which was a weird thing with the England national team where, you know, Seaman had to play every game. And before him, Shilton had to play every game. Now, that might have been the ego of those goalkeepers insisting on playing. But Tim Flowers, if Tim Flowers was around now, he'd be comfortably the first choice. England. He'd have 60 to 70 caps. It wouldn't even be a question. The same for Nigel Martin, the same for Chris Wood. They were the backups in their eras and they'd be by far England's best goalkeeper now. In defence, like I said, you've got Colin Hendry. The defence is largely built around him. 
he's joined from Dundee before the money, been sold to Manchester City because the finances at Blackburn were so poor. And then he's come back two years later. Once Dog Leash is in, the first player he wants is Colin Hendry. A very, very underrated defender historically. I would say not quite on Tony Adams' level, but the level below that. Historically, I'd put him top, certainly top 20 all-time Premier League centre-backs. Probably on a level with, you know, overall of the likes of Mark Wright, Des Walker. A better, I think a better player than Terry Butcher. Very, very underrated. Um, Graham Lasso was the left back, and he was he was tremendous. To be fair, bit of a bit of a pain in the arse, but but very, very good. Um, from Jersey, had moved over to Chelsea, played in their academy, made his breakthrough there. Blackburn took him from Chelsea after a big falling out with the Chelsea manager, Ian Porterfield, 700 grand they paid for him. And he established himself as the best left back in the country for, well, sorry, no, second best left back in the country, the best English left back in the league for a couple of years, 136 England caps would eventually go back to Chelsea, then on to Southampton. But Graham Rousseau was very, very good, good defensively, Good on the ball. Very, very good cross through the ball. Could get right to the byline and properly dig out a cross and send it with lovely loft where it would just, it would be too high for the goalkeeper to come and claim and it would land in that back post area and it would give Stuart Ripley or Sutton, if he peeled away, a real chance to attack it. Jeff Kenna was the right back that year. And Jeff Kenna, oh, but he wasn't, sorry. Jeff Kenna was one of the right backs that year. And Jeff Kenna was just a, a really reliable fullback, a kind of six or seven out of 10 pretty much every week. Uh, you had Henningberg, who I think is another one who's historically underrated. I think in part it's because he went to United and... It didn't really work out from there. But he was he was so reliable for Blackburn. Was the right he was the starting right back in that title winning season, but did play centre back quite a quite a bit as well. Ian Pierce played a lot at centre back. He was young and kind of making his way and looked like he was going to be a long time England international. And for some reason, it just, it never quite clicked for him. Spent a long time at West Ham and then just sort of drifted after that. But he's head of recruitment now at West Brom. Very, very talented, but definitely didn't live up to expectation. After that title winning season, Berg, Pierce, Hendry, Lasseau in front of Flowers, it, it, it was very strong. And with the, the depth that they had as well, people like Tony Gale, Alan Wright, 
Uh, I mentioned uh, Paul Warhurst earlier on. He played some centre-back. He played some midfield. He played up front a little bit. They just had, they had options that they could use, reliable options, not star names, not guys that were going to kick up a fuss if they weren't in the team, but lads that they could call on that they knew would give them six and a half out of ten. And with the quality they had elsewhere, that was going to be enough. In midfield, obviously, they did lose David Batty. And that was a huge blow because Batty and Sherwood together was really formidable. But he misses out, so it's a lot of Paul Warhurst. It's a lot of Mark Atkins. It's Robbie Slater. All rotating in those midfield areas, which Sherwood is pretty much the every game starter. Atkins probably played the most that season. Um, but Warhurst was more of a journeyman, or was more of a utility player, and was often needed elsewhere. And Slater, he's a decent player, but he just fell a little bit short of the real level that was required. Um, but look, he played his part and he won his medal, so that's that's all that really matters. Um, Tim Sherwood was the was the fixture in midfield. And look, we've all come to laugh at at tactics, Timmy, and he's a really bad manager. He's a worse sporting director. And he's an absolute gobshite when you hear him as a pundit. But he was a really good midfield player. A really good midfield player. He came to the Watford Academy, moved on to Norwich, and then would go on to Blackburn, would end up at Tottenham and Portsmouth and Coventry. But... Blackburn is where he really established himself. And obviously he's the captain of that title-winning team. He's the one that Dog Leash put that expectation on, that burden on. When the obvious choice was probably Colin Hendry. But I think Dog Leash realized that in Sherwood, he had with that extra responsibility, it would bring a higher level of play. And to his credit, he responded. He was brilliant the year they finished second, and he was outstanding the year they won the league. He was PFA team of the year the year they won the league. Stuart Ripley played right wing. Jason Wilcox played left wing. Wilcox had quite a few injuries that year, um, so he was in and out of the team. Slater played some games out wide as well to fill in. Um. Kevin Gallagher ends up missing most of the season through injury, but he was another really good player that they had. Then obviously up front, you've got Shearer, you've got Sutton, and then you've got Mike Newell as the depth. But Shearer plays every game. 42 games, 34 goals. Coming off, what is he? A year and a half removed from an ACL tear? That's really impressive. Uh, Sutton plays 40 of the game, scores 15. But... It's his work ethic. It's his willingness to do the real dirty work, to run the channels, to battle with centre-backs. That allows Shearer extra freedom to run off in behind, to float in the penalty area, to not have to do the graft, because Sutton was willing to do it for him. And they were a really good pairing. Sutton, again, a poor pundit, but he was a very good player. He was a very, very good player. 
And Shearer and Henrik Larsson had their best seasons playing with him. He'd stay with Blackburn until 99. He'd have one season with Chelsea. It didn't work out there. And he would go on to Celtic where he was very, very good. What's funny about him is when he was at Norwich early in his career, they didn't know if he was a centre-back or a striker until he was like playing in the first team. Some weeks he'd play up front, other weeks he'd play at the back. And they didn't know which he was better at. He hit a rich vein of form up front in once the Premier League era sort of launched. Scores 10 goals in the first season of the Premier League. Following season, he gets 28 in all competitions, 25 in the league. And that's what prompted Blackburn to spend, I believe, 5 million on him at the time. Yeah, 5 million. Um, Every club wanted him. And it it was Blackburn that were able to get him. And again, Blackburn. Blackburn were able to outbid Arsenal and United and Chelsea for players because of Jack Walker, but because the money gap just wasn't as big. Like, it wasn't nearly as big back then. The the big five or big six that we had as the Premier League launched, yeah, they were more wealthy than the rest, but the gap wasn't as astronomical. Like, there's the odd time you'd get a club that would come up like a Swindon, and and they just wouldn't have the, the wealth to try and compete. But there was never a time where the gap was City to Luton. Did you know? There wasn't even the gap there is now between Arsenal and Luton or Liverpool and Luton. And obviously, United are closer to City than they are to Arsenal or Liverpool in terms of wealth. But like, just think of the gap between the big six. Now, Spurs are the poorest of the big six. The big seven, if you want to include Newcastle. The big eight, if you want to include Villa. Spurs are the poorest club of that, and that there's still this, the gap between them and the rest is still astronomical. Chris Sutton was a really good player, but the star of the show is Shield. He's one of the greatest strikers I've ever seen. He had everything: pace, technical ability, incredible in the air, despite only being six foot. Six foot flat, and I think that might be a little bit generous to him. Incredibly strong. Immensely powerful shot. His goal scoring record is just stupid. Once he took off at Southampton, there was no stopping him. See, he works in slowly over the first four years at Saints. And then he just explodes. 21. Now, 60 games. Across all competitions, which again, 60 games is nothing to be sniffed at. But from there, he goes to Blackburn 16 in 21, 22 and 26 in all competitions, tears his ACL. Off the back of an ACL tear, he scores 34 goals in 48 games in all competitions, then 37 and 49, and then 37 and 48. That is stupid. Goes to Newcastle. 28 and 40, misses most of the next season through injury, comes back with 21 and 40, 30 and 50. Then he has a bunch of injury problems the following season. Then it's 27 and 46, 25 in 48, 28 and 52. He's had ACL tears. He's had shoulder issues. He's had ankle issues. He's had another knee issue. 
He does then start to slow down, 19 and 42, and only seven in 28 in the league, and then 14 and 41, 10 and 32 in his last season, 05, 06. He's 36 years of age, and he's still still able to score 14 goals in a season. 379 goals in 734 games in all competitions, 30 and 63 for England. Um, retired from England quite young. He was only 30 when he hung up his boots for England to focus on Newcastle, but he'd had some injuries and he wanted to focus on his club career. He was he was otherworldly when he was fit and flying. And people want to talk about Harry Kane's a goal machine and Aguero's a goal machine. Alan Shearer in the modern game is 40 goals a season easy. Easy. It's so much easier to score goals now because the rules have been skewed so much. Like, Alan Shearer used to get booted for 90 minutes. Now, he booted back a lot himself. He was a pretty dirty player when he needed to be and sometimes just because he wanted to be. But in the modern game, where defenders can't really touch him, with his strength and his speed in his early career, he's easy 40 goals a season. He's 30 every year in the Premier League, guaranteed. All manner of goals, headers, volleys, tap-ins, long-rangers, scuffed shots, perfect shots. The only thing he wasn't great at, he didn't have a great left foot, but he could do everything else. Free kicks, penalties, sensation. Absolutely sensational. And people hate him because he didn't win enough during his career. And that's true, he did. The entirety of his time at Newcastle, he got to two FA Cup finals and lost both of them. Won nothing with England other than doing the 21 Toulon tournament. But he won a Premier League with Blackburn Rovers and nobody can take that away from him. Finished third in the Ballon d'Or in 96. PFA Player of the Year twice. Football Writers Player of the Year once. Sensational. Absolutely sensational. Most goals in Premier League history, obviously, with with uh, 260. Now, I still expect that Kane will come back and beat that in a couple of years, but you never know. Shearer might hold on to that record a bit longer. Um, so that was Blackburn winning the league. So the following year, they've got a new manager because having won the league, Kenny decides to step down. And Ray Harford, who'd been his assistant, takes over. And having won the league, they drop to seventh place. They have a bad start. They pick up a bit, but then they're just a bit middling. They go to the FA Cup early. They go to the League Cup in round four. And they have a disastrous Champions League campaign and win only one of six games against Spartak Moscow, Rosenberg, and Legia Warsaw. They won the last game against Rosenberg, but they were eliminated. A disastrous campaign. No excuse for it, really. They should have they should have walked through that group. Um, they'd spent more money. they brought in more good players. Chris Coleman, another good centre-back in. Lars Bohinen, really good, versatile midfielder. Matty Holmes was very highly regarded at the time. Just wasn't to be for them. 
and the drop off was stark. And it wouldn't stop there. In 96, 97, they finished 13th. Ray Harford was sacked in the October. And Tony Parks takes over as caretaker. Now, they thought they had something. When Harford was sacked, they went to Italy. And they spoke to a man who was regarded as one of, the, one of the best managers in the world at the time, then Sampdoria manager, Senor Ericsson. And Ericsson said to them, I'll take the job, but I want to wait until the end of the season, and then I'll take over. And he didn't. He double-crossed them. Now, going into this 96-97 season, they've also sold Alan Shearer. With Dog Leash gone, Shearer has decided he doesn't want to be at Blackburn anymore. Newcastle are a team on the up. Under Kevin Keegan, they're spending a fortune. They come in with a world record fee. So Blackburn take it. They'd won a league title. Now they could make over 11 million on a player, which back then, remember, is enormous. Like, they spent three and a half. That'd be like buying a player now for 50 million and selling him for 200 after three years, four years. After four years, selling him for 200. You're going to do that every time. I do wonder if Kenny had stayed or if they'd replaced Kenny with, with respect to Ray Harford, with a better manager. I do wonder. Um, would he have stayed there long term? I think he might have. But obviously Ericsson double-crosses them and ends up joining Lazio. And unfortunately, Tony Parks has to see out this season from October. They end up 13th. They sign Martin Dalling. It's a bit of a disaster. And then they hire Roy Hodgson. 97-98, they finish 6th. They qualify for the UEFA Cup, it's a good bounce-back season. And Sutton has taken on the mantle of being the guy in the absence of Shearer. Took him a little while. That first season wasn't great. He scored 12 goals in all competitions. But the second season, 97-98, he looks more comfortable, gets 21 goals in all competitions. 98-99. The Hodge is sacked in the November. Jack Walker's health means he's less involved. Brian Kidd is hired. Brian Kidd begins the season as assistant manager to Alex Ferguson at United. He is hired to replace Roy Hodgson. And Blackburn get relegated while United go on to win the treble. I've often wondered how often Brian Kidd thinks about that. And I get that he wanted to try his hand. I get that he wanted to back himself. And to be fair to him, to be fair to him, he did not a good job, but he did a decent job. And he did his best to keep them up. But Hodgson had dug them a big old hole. They were so, so bad at the start of that season. They finished six points off safety. They finished 19th. But 
Kid didn't do a terrible job. But they were relegated. And then in 2000, 99-2000, they're in the championship. They finish 11th. They go through three managers. Kid, Parks come back in for a while. That poor fellow was always called upon to fill in. And then Graham Souness took over. They finished 11th. But they had hope because Souness was a decent manager. And they had the money. They thought they'd be able to rebuild and come back up. But then in the August of 2000, Jack Walker dies at the age of 71. And everything changed then for Blackburn. His wealth was put into a trust and the trust weren't as willing to spend the money as he had been when he was alive. And obviously then the club would be sold to the Venkies in 2010. And it's, it's never been the same. But for Blackburn, that run in the 90s, especially those early years, the promotion fourth place, second place, closing in on United and then overtaking them and winning a league title. That four-year run, that's magic. That's football magic. And it's something we're unlikely to see again because Jack Walker buying that club is not the same as countries buying clubs. It's not the same as Roman Abramovich buying Chelsea or Todd Bowley buying Chelsea. Jack Walker didn't buy that club as a plaything. He didn't buy it as an investment. He bought it because he loved it. He was a local guy who'd made his fortune local and wanted to put it back into the community. And Blackburn, as opposed to Leicester, where... Leicester needed all the other top all the top clubs to have stinkers and they needed a lot of luck and they didn't build to it it just happened they almost got relegated the year before in many ways the Leicester title is the biggest fluke in sports history I'm not taking away from it but it is there was no precursor to it there was no indication of it there were 5000 to 1 going into the season Blackburn were second favourites going into this season. They had built towards it over three previous seasons. They were built to be a title-winning team. Leicester weren't. Leicester were built to survive, nothing more. I don't think we'll see a Blackburn again where a local businessman puts his money in. Now, look, Brighton are the closest thing we've got now, where Tony Bloom is a Brighton fan, bought the club and has built it up. But I don't see a world in which Brighton win the league. Now, maybe there's an outlier season, post-Guardiola, post-Klopp. United will be a train wreck for years. Chelsea will be a dumpster fire for years. Maybe there's a season where Brighton just have everything fall right for them. And if that is the case, wonderful. I, I would I would love to see it. 
but I don't think we'll see it happen again. What happened at Blackburn was really special. A great group of players, a great manager, one of the great owners, and a club that deserved that success. A club that, other than that, you know, has long been starved of success. They'd won the league title in 1912 and 1914. 80 years. 80 years they were waiting. They'd won FA Cups. In 1884, 1885, 1886, 1890, and 1821, and 1928. It's been nearly 70 years since they won the FA Cup. Now, they would have one modicum of success post-Jack Walker's life. Soon S would bring them back up into the Premier League in the 01- uh, 2000, 2001 season. They finished second behind Fulham. They had a fun team. Jason McAteer was there. David Dunn was there. Damian Duff was there. Henning Berg had gone back. Matt, Jens- Matt Janssen was there. You've heard me talk about the Dunn, Duff, Janssen 3 before. Jeff Kenna was still there. Isle Berkovich was in on loan. It was a good team. And they got promoted. And in 2002, they finished in 10th and they won the League Cup. They won the League Cup in 2002. Got to the final against the odds, overcoming Sheffield United in the semi-final. Arsenal before that, the Matt Janssen hat-trick. They got to that final, they played Spurs. 72,500 people at the Millennium Stadium in Cardiff. Brad Friedel, obviously outstanding goalkeeper. Martin Taylor at right back. Henning Berg, Niels Eric Johansson at centre back. Stiging Gabjornaby at left back. Liverpool legend. The best man to cross the ball from the halfway line I've ever seen. Keith Gillespie on the right wing. Damian Duff on the left wing. Mark Hughes and David Dunn in centre midfield. That's a super attacking team because Mark Hughes was a nine who somehow ended up being like a ball-winning midfielder for the last year of his career or so. And then Andy Cole, who'd missed all those chances all those years before, he ends up at Blackburn partnering Matt Janssen. Janssen gets the first. Christian Ziga equalises. But Andy Cole gets the winner. And Blackburn win the cup. And there's other names in that squad that are worth remembering. Craig Hignett is in that squad as well. Quality player. Brilliant for Borough back in the day. John Curtis, just a really solid defender who had a long career for a bunch of different clubs, having come through the United Academy. Alan Mahon had a long career, including two caps for Ireland. Jordi, I don't remember a whole lot of. He had a a lone spell at Blackburn, so he was only there for eight games. But that was was it. That's the last success they've had. But you can't take it away from them. And it was still with Jack Walker's money, so that 
for me, is is a Jack Walker built success. But yeah, Blackburn in the nineties, incredible, an incredible story for a club that hadn't had any success at all in seventy years, for a club that had spent. 60 years or the better part of what 50 years out of the no 45 years out of the top flight there's 120,000 people in Blackburn I didn't think it was that big so my my rural <laughs> rural city thing looks even worse but if I'm not mistaken like it's textiles and wool and stuff that they make there Mills and stuff, so there is a, there is a, a lot of rural area around Blackburn. I'm definitely right about that. Um, yeah, Blackburn Rovers. I'll see you after this. Right, welcome back. So uh, yesterday, Feyenoord and Ajax managed to complete their fixture, which had been started on Sunday. Feyenoord were 3-0 up. And then Ajax fans decided to embarrass themselves enormously. Um, Santiago Jimenez and Barbosa had put Feyenoord 3-0 ahead and Ajax fans just lost all sense and reason and threw flares onto the pitch and ran amok outside, damaged a lot of property and really did make themselves look very, very poor. Uh, basically a big old tantrum. So the game was finished with no fans in the stands and to add insult to injury, Jimenez completed his hat-trick and Feyenoord won 4-0. Victor Osman's agent is threatening legal action against Napoli after a post on their TikTok, which... There's two posts, actually. The first one is... I don't even know what to say. It's its of him missing the penalty where they altered his voice and made it sound quite high-pitched and quite squeaky. And the second one is just a shocker. Um, so I don't really know what to make of it. They've been deleted... But there's been no statement from the club, so I don't know what's gone on. But I, I think we're witnessing the last days of Victor Osman as a as a Napoli player. I'd be stunned if he's there in this this uh, next season. Now Napoli are a mess this year. Uh, the Rudy Garcia appointment has been a complete disaster. He's not getting the best out of Osman. He's certainly not getting the best out of Kvitsa Palacelia. So I, I think we'll see that team be further broken up, and I think. I'd be stunned if that manager sees out the season. Uh, he took Kvalachkelia off. He had words with the manager. He took Osman off. He had words with the manager. I think it will come to an end in the next month or two. Um, Morocco will host the AFCON in 2025. And the East African Trident of Kenya, Uganda and Tanzania will host it in 2027. So Guinea were meant to hold it in 2025, but they were stripped of the tournament after 
the military intervention and whatever else took place there. So Zambia applied for it. Nigeria and Benin applied for it, but they've decided to go with Morocco. And both of them agreed to withdraw to give Morocco the opportunity. Morocco are also bidding for the uh, 2030 World Cup along with Spain and Portugal. And the other African countries agreed that allowing Morocco the opportunity to show that they can host an international tournament could help towards their bid for the World Cup. And it would be very, very cool if it was Spain, Portugal and Morocco. That I can get on board with. The the Greece-Saudi Arabia nonsense? No, thank you. This, this I can get on board with. Um, Chelsea, how have repeated moves for Brighton talent worked out for both clubs? Okay. Brighton to Chelsea since August 2022. Graham Potter sacked after six months, seven months. Uh, Billy Reid, not good. Bruno Salter, not good. Ben Roberts, goalkeeping coach, not good. Kyle McCauley, recruitment analysis, analyst, not good. Paul Winstanley, now director of football or co-director of football, not good. Levi Colwell, early signs haven't been great. He hasn't been good this season at all. He looks a different player than the one we saw at Brighton last year. Uh, Mark Kukure, obviously flop. Um, Robert Sanchez, it's very early, but the early signs are are not not promising. Um, he could be about a good backup goalkeeper, but he's certainly not going to be a full time starter. And Moises Caicedo, thus far, pretty disastrous, but I, I think he will turn that round. Um, so yeah, not one of those moves. There have been ten of them have worked out well. Thus far. Now, I think Colwell <clears throat> is too talented to not establish himself and thrive. I think Caicedo's too special to not turn this around and do very well there. Just on Chelsea. Is it just me that finds it really weird that one of the five biggest clubs in England financially and one of the probably 10 to 12 biggest clubs in the world can't find a front of kit sponsor, can't find a shoulder sponsor. Is it just me that finds that weird? It's all very odd. It doesn't help them at all for their FFP. It doesn't help them at all. So Chelsea are going to be in some bother. Now they might just stick two fingers up and just keep going, but we'll see. Uh, Anthony has flown back to England, having stayed in Brazil for reasons known only to Anthony, and has agreed to meet Greater Manchester Police to answer questions about the serious allegations made against him. It is understood he is willing to surrender his phone to GMP to aid their investigation. I'm not sure how that's going to help, because he could just wipe his phone. Um... His ex-partner has made allegations. There's two other women's have made allegations. United say they're taking the allegations seriously and have granted Anthony leave with full pay. Yet Jaden Sancho wouldn't say sorry for something he didn't do and he's not earning full pay. That's weird. Um, yeah, 
I mean, it, it doesn't read well. It really doesn't read well for United or for the player. But hopefully, hopefully they they can get to some um, some sort of conclusion with this, and the investigation, you know, is, is comprehensive. Uh, last bit of news. You might have seen Aston Villa play this season and you might have noticed that their shirts are retaining an absolute ton of sweat and kind of changing colour, getting much, much darker looking uh, as games go on. Now, the women's season is due to start soon and they've got a bunch of games on TV coming up and they have to wear the same shirts and that's causing some comprehension, some apprehension uh, among the women for obvious reasons. So I'll be really interested to see how they solve that. I think the best course of action is for the women to wear last year's kits and not wear these because uh, it could be a bad look for the club and certainly could be very uncomfortable for those women. Um, on to the gossip. Arsenal sporting director Edu has held talks with Ollie Watkins about a move to Arsenal for the Aston Villa striker with Chelsea also interested. Now, this is an exclusive by Steve Kay, who, as we know, is an enormous spoofer. Uh, Aston Villa are in contract talks with Watkins and want to finalise a deal by January. Uh, Arsenal and Chelsea are willing to offer players as well as money in an attempt to sign Ivan Tony. I still think Ivan Tony at Villa with Watkins would just be fantastic. I would love to see those two together for Villa. Um, Spain defender Mark Cucurea has told Chelsea he wants to leave in January after summer switch to United fell through. Newcastle are set to open contract talks with Joe Linton and Sean Longstaff with both of their current deals set to expire in June of 2025. Everton are hoping to sign Jared Branthwaite to a new long-term contract. He's had an impressive start to the season. One of a few, one of the few bright spots for Everton. Barcelona are considering a move for Wilfred Ndidi when his contract expires at the end of the season. I, I suppose, I suppose he doesn't really have the technical ability that they would require, but does have the ball winning. Injuries are the issue. Uh, so Jim Radcliffe is ready to restructure his offer. This is all garbage. Napoli are tracking Christoph Galtier. Why would we be tracking him when he's not working? You can just you know go to his house. Um, I, I that wouldn't be a good move either. Um, Barcelona have verbally agreed a thirty point four million fee with Manchester City. I would imagine it's lower than that, uh, and I wouldn't imagine anything's agreed at this point. Slovenian striker Benjamin Sesko says he spoke to United over the summer before he left Red Bull Salzburg but felt the move for RB Leipzig was better for his development. Um, I'm going to assume this was the previous summer because the Sesco to Salzburg for, to Leipzig deal was done last summer in 2022, not this summer. So I'm just going to assume that that's the case. Reading have been placed under a transfer embargo for for failing to play to pay His Majesty's Revenue Commission or Revenue Collectors on time and could face a further points deduction 
if they fail to pay wages to players and staff this Friday. What's going on at Reading is horrendous, especially having seen what took place at Derby, what took place at Wigan, obviously what took place at Bury, Chesterfield before that. Uh, It appears to me like Dai Young, the Chinese businessman who's owned the club for quite a while, um, May 2017, him and uh, him and a partner bought the club. And it's just been an absolute catastrophe. I mean, he's put money in. He's put over 200 million of his own money into the club. But because of the changes in laws in, in China and the government not wanting money moved out of China, the Chinese government not wanting money moved out, he's had difficulty uh, trying to get money into Reading. But, you know, red, relegated last season because of points deduction, started this season on a points deduction. And potentially now facing another points deduction. Like, this is just really, really tough. Um, They should have nine points right now and be comfortably outside the relegation zone instead of 22nd. And if they got a six-point or 12-point point deduction, probably six, I guess, is more likely. They'd have minus one point despite winning three games. They were docked four to begin the season. They've been docked another one. This is a mess. This is such a mess. They really do need somebody to come in and rescue that club. Uh, Chelsea have given Premier League have been given Premier League approval. For Sports Data Group, Infinite Infinite Athlete to be their front of shirt sponsor in a deal worth forty million a year. Now this is odd. I've just literally talked about that. Um, I seem to remember there was a good article. Uh, I can't think where it was. Maybe the Daily Mail, uh, which obviously is a rarity for the Daily Mail to have a good article. But I seem to remember they couldn't find that this club, this this company, could really afford to pay forty million a year. Now, my guess is that this money's been rerouted from one of Chelsea's owners or one of Clear Lake's partners. It doesn't. It doesn't look good, though. It's not a good look for anybody involved. Uh, We'll leave it there then, folks. That's it for today. I will see you all tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Sending questions on Discord. Bye-bye.
Social Podcast Network.